It is Tuesday, January 19th, 2021. I'm Kevin Williams, also known as the Blind Montana Man. That's what I have officially branded myself as now. Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man. How does that sound, Jeanette? It sounds pretty good. I think so. And um, I've talked about how I've thought about changing what I do as in podcasts and so forth. So I think I'm going to start by branding myself, uh, Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man. Anyway, Jeanette Finnicum is my guest tonight. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. I've tried to get you on for a while. It's uh, I told Ammon and you too. One of the reasons I started my podcast was to interview you folks. That was actually one of the main reasons I started my podcast. Well, I appreciate you having me on and and to be interested in my story. I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. For me um. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about you first. You are LDS. I, are, are you a lifelong member or what? Yes. Okay. And where were you born and raised at? Well, I was born in Logan, Utah. I lived there all of six months until my father uh, entered the army. And then off we were for the rest of my um, formative years. We, we lived all over the country and in Panama for a short period of time. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I graduated from Clearfield High School up in Utah. I, I, I spent my last year and a half of high school there in Utah. And uh, now I'm an Arizonian. <laughs> you had a good high school experience, I take it. And anything about your childhood that stands out? Just that we traveled a lot. Um, I was uh, able to uh, live in quite a few different places that made me... Um, very well-rounded, I think. Um, I was able, I, I love all kinds of people. I've been able to be, uh, meet lots of people from different cultures and backgrounds. I just, I feel blessed for that. And I know that the military experience can provide that for many people. I assume uh, you did not live in Panama when President Bush invaded it, did you? I don't think you were there. No, no I'm a, a bit older than that too. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let me ask you, uh, do you have any pioneer stock? I believe we do, uh, on my dad's side. Um, and I don't, I'm sorry to say, I don't have any of the family names right on the tip of my tongue, but, um, and my mom, I had the pleasure of, um, having my mom stay with me for the last four months of her life. She passed away on Christmas day this last year. So that's what I've been doing lately was, was taking care of my mom, but she, she, we were going through all of the family pictures and putting names to the faces on those pictures. And, and uh, she was quite, uh, she, she was quite the storyteller and had a lot of things to talk about in reference to her family and the heritage that her pioneer heritage and, and a lot of those stories I hadn't heard before. So I was really grateful to hear them. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, I'd like to express my condolences. I, I know we were going to do the podcast, what, sometime January 5th, I believe, and then we postponed it. I'd like to express my condolences there, but uh, I'm sure your mom was a great mom. So how did you and Lavoie meet? Let's start there. Okay, well, gosh, it was many, many years after high school. Yes, 1994. <laughs> I, I read that somewhere. Oh, I read it on Wikipedia. You and him got married in 94, according to Wikipedia. We'd both been married before, so we were blending our two families. 
Um, and we, we were married in 94 and we had nine little children at the time. They were all under the age of nine. Nine. To, okay. So you, I guess you had a certain amount and he had a certain amount and that equaled nine children. Yes. Okay. Yes. And when they say, you know, you know how back in the day when they used to say how women were the package deal, because they always came with a whole bunch of children. Well, oh. the whole package deal because he came with six and I only came with three. So I considered him the package deal. Was that hard? Because I would, I would think it would be very hard to mix two families together. We've actually done very well at that. Um, we have 12 children now oh. and it's yours, mine, ours, and theirs. We adopted two sons and Lavoy and I had a daughter together. And I, I think, I just feel really blessed that uh, we had all of our children were very young and they grew up as friends and they played together and they grew up as um, doing things together all the time so they grew up just like regular siblings and that's how they are with each other now you know they spend a lot of time together they're always talking to each other we do have you know moms in the in the mix but kelly and i and get along just fine so <laughs> I don't mean to get too personal, but I've always been interested in this because I do have a stepmom as well. And let me tell you, I think if I was a teenager growing up, I would have had a very difficult time with my stepmom. Well, so do the do your kids, the nine kids that came into the marriage, do your kids get along with it? Sounds like they do get along with their biological mom and you. So do you get along with the biological mom? Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. okay. Kelly so, and I are good friends. Oh, you good. Know, there was adjustment periods like there is in everything. Mm -hmm. But both of us have grown um, a great deal from having blended family uh, relationships. And I'm really grateful for the family that we have. And we don't see those different lines that people uh, see in a, in, 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 in uh, a blended family like this. We try to uh, not fracture ourselves so much by uh, putting labels <laughs> on no. who belongs to whom and are you a real kid or a step kid or a half kid? We just don't go there, you know what I mean? I think that's healthy. I, what, do you think that's a mistake? Do you think that's why some families, a lot of families don't make it blended families because they do go there? Well, I don't know. I think it's every situation is unique and you have to kind of, just take it uh, one day at a time and pray for the best. When we adopted Mitch, he was my first adopted son, and he was 14 when he came to live with us. And at 16, we adopted him. And he said to me, well, today I'm a real boy. I'm no longer Pinocchio. You know, he, he, he equated it to that story. I'm a real boy. Um, wow. And no. I don't know why he put it that way, but he just felt like he finally belonged. And so I really don't think that um, wherever your parents come from, make you uh, one way or another, you know, whether you're uh, born into a family or not. Yeah. Now, you're, I guess we can go, uh, we'll just start off right here. Uh, what, Mitch, your stepson, was that the foster, one of the foster kids that Lavoie adopted to make a living? He did therapeutic foster care for over 18 years, and we had yeah. probably over 60 boys within our home in that time. I'm oh. actually doing that foster care again. Um, I have two teenage boys in my home now. Um, but yes, two of our two of those young men we adopted over the time. 
Okay, so how did you and Lavoy meet? I guess we never really officially answered that question. Uh, I, I guess I met him at a church singles dance in 1993, I believe, and just after, just a couple weeks later, well, it was 94 that we got married. So it was a couple weeks after a church wow. dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you elope? Right in St. George, St. George, Utah, so... Did you elope? It sounds like one of those marriages where you might have eloped or something. No, we still planned a wedding and we still had a wedding and his family and my family both attended. We just knew what we wanted and we knew what was right and we just Mm -hmm. didn't want to let any grass grow, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> Let's talk about the foster kids. Lavoy uh, had foster kids. Do you still keep in touch with them? Obviously, Mitch, the one that you adopted, and the other. But do you keep in touch with others? And how do, how were they? How did they like being out there on his ranch? Um, we do keep in touch uh, as much as they want to. I get calls and letters, and sometimes visits from different boys. Mm-hmm. Um, as each one of my other children have been married, some of the boys come to the weddings, you know, and, and visit, uh, come for holidays on occasion. Um, but yes, we do still have communications with them. Was it challenging to, because I have, uh, I got to be honest, I have a very bitter taste in my mouth about the foster system. And it could be that I was just around parents that had absolutely no business being foster parents in the first place. Um, was it difficult because a lot of these foster kids come with tons and tons of baggage? It can, it can be difficult. Um, I think with the correct training and understanding of the different circumstances that these children have gone through can make you a better parent and, um, certainly more compassionate and understanding and empathetic to their situations. And they are so diverse. And that is one thing that, and I, I learned this just from having my own children, no two children are the same and they can't be raised the same. They're unique. We are all unique individuals that God has created. And so and you take that into consideration as well. Um, but I'm sorry for your experience. I know Lavoie and I worked really hard to provide a good home for each one of the children that came into it. Um, not just our own, but, but others, you know, I mean, it, it was really important to us that we had that, that uh, peaceful environment for them to come to. But they loved when we did teenage boys and we chose that for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, we had so many girls <laughs> that... Um, we offset it with doing teenage boys and, uh, but we had the ranch. And so that was a, a great learning tool for these boys. They would come and they would learn how to ride a horse and to work and to take care of the horse and to feed, feed the horse and to work on the ranch and do fencing and all the things that it entails in a ranching branding and roundup and just all the different things that we did over the years with them. You know, a side note, then we'll get into why Lavoy did what he did. But uh, I often wonder what I, I, I've really thought about ever since I was 13, and even more so September of 2019. I wonder what me, what I as a blind person can do on a ranch. Oh, you could do probably a lot. Really? Um, yeah, I, I, I would think that you would be able to do a lot. You would be able okay. to horse you know maybe with some assistance with someone making sure that the horse you know didn't go off yeah uh, in an area 
that it wouldn't be appropriate, but there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to ride or feed the animals and different things. Yeah, there would I be would a think lot. I would need assistance on finding my cows. <laughs> well, we always need assistance finding my cows. Oh, sometimes okay. I wish I had, sometimes I wish I had uh, little drones up in the air because the, my allotment is like 30,000 acres. And so those cows can be anywhere and they can hide pretty good in those trees. And so oh. it's, it sometimes can be very difficult for someone who can see as well. <laughs> I would imagine though, I could certainly lay pipe and do irrigation. In fact, I've irrigated before on a farm. So yeah. I, I would imagine I could lay pipe, connect it. And I probably have to have help laying the pipe in the exact location probably. But there's always certain ways that you could go about uh, making it uh, yeah. to where you could be independently working on a project, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, when I met Cliven, I actually thought about the idea, and I, I still may do it. Uh, I thought about the idea of spending a whole week with him, working with him side by side on his ranch. Well, that would be a, good, a great experience because he's a great cowboy. Oh, yeah, he is. A, yeah, he is a great cowboy. I'm, I'm a wannabe cowgirl. I, when Lavoie passed, I truly was the city girl who married the cowboy. And after he passed, it was my 17-year-old daughter, Tian, at the time, who was teaching me the ropes. And so oh. I would say I'm just a, I'm still a, a work in progress where the cowboy <laughs> is concerned. <laughs> yeah, but um, I still rely on my, my children quite a bit to help me get. Okay, well, very good. How would you describe what Lavoie was like? Well, I, I would say that he was first and foremost uh, a man who loved God and loved his Savior, Jesus Christ. And second, I would say that he valued his family above all um, here on earth. <laughs> he, that's where he wanted to be. That's where he wanted to spend his time. That's who he wanted to spend his time with. Um, when he would um, put projects together, he would involve the children. Um, he was loving, he was kind, he was compassionate, he was giving, he sacrificed um, to give to others who were less fortunate, not only through the foster care system, but within our community. He served his community, he served within our church. Um, he gave of his time freely. He gave of his substances freely. Uh, he had a strong sense of who he was. And he had an incredible amount of integrity. His word was, was unbreakable. Um, completely honest in everything that he ever did. I could go on. If I ever wanted an answer to a question, I knew I would get the straight scoop from a boy. <laughs> I, I could count on his word and his answers. He was intelligent and smart. He was, um, and he continued that love of learning. And uh, he was a great teacher and a great storyteller. And you see that come out in his book. And I'm in the process of putting together a book I found in his briefcase after he died. And I'm, I've been typing that one up because it was all handwritten and I can just see these vivid characters. And so he had this great ability to be able to tell a story and, and develop characters and people and situations. And, and it, and it comes from a very full and uh, rich life, I think. 
um, because he had so much to draw from, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, what's the book called that you're putting together? He never gave it a title. And so oh. I have to give it a title. I'm in the, it's, I'm only on chapter 10 of right of typing it, it handwritten, but then with my mom coming to, to stay with me the last four months and, and everything, I, I, I had to put everything aside for a little while and, and take care of her. So I'm, I'm behind in many different areas of my life right now, but I'll, I have plenty of time to catch up. What made Lavoie decide not to continue paying his grazing fees or in what in modern terms, what we call fire the BLM? Well, I, I think the situation with Clive and Bundy was uh, first and foremost in the press and he uh, heard about their story. He went to go visit Clive in the night before the standoff uh, he wanted to hear it from Cliven's own mouth and not rely on the news because he he really didn't trust the media or the reports that were coming out in reference to what was going on. And so the the little bit that Cliven did speak to him about that evening prior to the standoff, he felt comfortable enough to go stand with him the next day. And he was one of the horsemen that day. He brought his horse and took it over in a trailer and and, and rode that day with the Bundys and then all was well, you know, it ended well and everybody, the cows were given back and everybody was able to go home and, and uh, we were really grateful that uh, he was able to return home. It was very, very, uh, it was very stressful sitting here at home trying to rely on the media. And uh, at that time we had no cable in the house. The only thing I could listen to was the internet, you know, and the different uh, talk show hosts on the internet talking about, um, excuse me, the standoff, and it was the pictures coming across the internet of all these officers lined up against the cowboys, and the, every average a day, uh, you know, every American, average American standing there with them with children, and and just, I, I, it was so, um, it was so scary. I, I don't, it's hard to come up with another word. But sitting here at home with no way to do anything or talk to anyone or contact him because the cell phones weren't working, it was very scary. And I was very worried for him and his safe return. And I was really grateful when he walked through the door that day. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the story of Isaac uh, taking off to meet a wife, doesn't it? In the sense that there were no cell phones, there was no internet there, you know, who knows if they could, if Isaac would be back to meet his parents or who knows when. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did, did your cell phone service just not work at that point? Well, we were, <laughs> LaVoy was not one to carry a cell phone. He was a true cowboy oh. sense of the word. He didn't want the technology going with him out there on the, in the out, great outdoors, but um, I was in contact with a, a friend of mine named Colleen, uh, and she was giving me up-to-date uh, uh, updates until she accidentally had pulled into the FBI staging center, and she didn't realize she had pulled into this area because they were kind of pushing the cars off the freeway and trying to get people to go in different areas, and so she ended up pulling into the wrong area, and then they wouldn't let her back out, and at at some point they killed all cell activity because I was no longer able to get through to her. And she told me that they, they knocked out the cell tower. Or they knocked out the cell signals at that point while she was in that compound area that okay. 
area. So that's that's all I know is that's the reason why my cell wasn't able to work out there. By the way, for those of you who think that, oh, uh, not paying your grazing fees, how is that firing the BLM? Well, when you pay your grazing fees, you essentially, before you pay them, you sign a contract with the BLM saying that, okay, this federal land that I'm grazing on will be taken care of by the Bureau of Land Management. So if you don't pay your fees and, and, and you paid them for a while, essentially you are firing the BLM. As a matter of fact, that was a term coined by a New York Times reporter filing, firing the BLM. And so when did Lavoie stop paying his grazing fees? He never did stop paying his grazing fees. He, had our, he was paid in full upon his death. He had sent a letter to the... Um, to Washington saying that he no longer wanted um, any help from the BLM and that he was no longer going to pay his grazing fees, but they sent it back the month after he died saying that he would have to submit that letter directly to the BLM. And so with that said, he had intentions of not paying uh, his grazing fees, but he was paid, he was current, he was not behind. Okay. Everything happened so quickly. You need to understand that um, in 2014, when he rode with Cliven, he came home and he resumed life. And we resumed our ranching chores and responsibilities with the children. And we went on with life. And it wasn't until um, the following year that um, he started, you know, we started marketing his book, Only by Blood and Suffering, Regaining Lost Freedom. And when he was out marketing his book at speaking engagements that he would set up in different communities, he would talk about property rights and land rights and the issues of grazing here in the West and the different problems that he knew to be happening with other ranchers and which included Clive and Bundy at the time. And so he would talk about those things with all these people gathered to hear about his book, he would be talking about land rights. And so in, he'd started making YouTube videos talking about the different things that he saw that was going on because he realized through a Glenn Beck interview right after the 214 incident that the truth was not coming out in any forum. So he wanted the people to hear his side of the story. So he started YouTube videos and talking about land rights again. And so in, after the book went, uh, was released in June of 2015 and he started to travel, then things started to ramp up. For some reason, he became on the radar of the BLM, Dan Love, um, Greg Bretzing. He was uh, being surveilled by the FBI. We had been followed. We had been bugged in our house that we found out a couple of years after his death. Um, during this period of time that I'm speaking about in 215, they wired our house. They sent drones over our home. They started surveilling our ranch talking to other ranchers. And when we started to get wind of that, that he was talking, they were talking to some of our neighbors, that's when he continued to make more videos. Well, we're, we're talking, this is September of 2015. And then there was the issue with, um, oh, names escape me. <laughs> um, before we, uh, the, oh, shoot. He went with Shauna Cox to go speak with someone in reference to another um, issue in reference to land, uh, land rights. And um, that was in September. And, and here he is in November. And then in December, he's asked to go up to Malheur 
And he went on a last minute notification. It was not a pre-planned thing. He went within hours of being um, asked and, and then he never came home. And so everything happened really quickly. And I believe he sent the letter to the United States government, Department of Interior, I believe is where he sent it. Um, I believe he mailed it off in either September or November. I, I have to look at the postmark. And, and we sent it. Well, I thought it was in August. No, he sent a return receipt letter off to them. And we didn't hear back from them until after Lavoie had actually been killed. I received a letter from the United States Department of Interior saying, I'm sorry, you've contacted the wrong agency. You need to talk to your local BLM office. And so it was kind of a slap in the face that we got that after he was murdered. And we know that they knew he was dead. So I don't know why they bothered to send that back. Yeah, what, what, yeah. Government for you. <laughs> so how did, uh, you kind of alluded to, how did LaVoy find out about the Hammonds then in Burns, Oregon? Well, that was another story that was in the news in 2015 because of um, what the persecution they were going through uh, with the federal government, the Park Service and the uh, BLM offices back there, up, up there, I should say, up in Oregon. And so as that was, you know, getting more headlines, you know, he started paying attention to the news and alternative news to find out more, more in depth. Because when you listen to the stories, what, you, what you're getting over the airways is a lot of label lynching. You know, you get here all this rancher, this arsonist, a white supremacist, a racist white rancher, you know, what, what kind of headlines came out when they were peacefully demonstrating up there in Malheur? <laughs> they were called every dirty name you could possibly think of on every newspaper across America and in the world, in the world we were labeled like this. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, I'll just give you a very brief explanation. The Hammonds are a, well, they were a ranching family in Burns, Oregon, or just outside of Burns. And Ammon Bundy, who's been on my show before, uh, him and Lavoie Finnecombe and a bunch of others, I think Ammon and Lavoie, though, were the orchestrators of the event oh, where no. they occupied the federal building. No, for... that, that's not correct. Oh, that, that's not correct. Lavoie didn't orchestrate anything where Malheur was concerned. That was Ammon's decision to do that. And he presented it to a group of people um, that had come to Malheur to demonstrate peacefully down the streets, you know, hold the signs, give the roses and to the Hammonds. Uh, they took him flowers. They uh, threw some pennies at the, the city building but Ammon was the one that came up with the idea to go out to Malheur and he presented it at a meeting at a restaurant in Burns, Oregon. Um, oh, okay. And that's where Ryan, his brother uh, agreed to go and a handful of other people agreed to go and make the continued stand at Malheur. And my husband was one of them at that point. Okay. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. Um, now, how did Shauna Cox get involved? I believe she might have been at that same meeting or showed up afterwards. Um, she's a great friend uh, to all of us, uh, but specifically the Bundys. She's a very close, dear friend of the Bundy family. Great person, by the way. I met her at yeah. a rally. Yeah, she's an amazing woman. Oh, yeah. 
Um, okay, so now let's, okay, so by the way, I just want to make clear, because I've read a lot of your story on, and there's a link in the podcast, the link in the show notes, onecowboystandforfreedom.com. Very good blog on there, by the way. Um, Thank you. Let's just say this, the, what you're hearing, Jeanette is right, what you hear on the airwaves is not the same. In fact, my cousin was ecstatic. I had a cousin text me last week. There was a book on the Bundys you might want to check out. I said, what's it? And he gave me the name. I Googled it. And I said, I'm not impressed. I know who wrote this book. I think it's called American Zion. Uh, The person who wrote it is awfully liberal. And I said, I'm not reading it. And he goes, well, it's good to get both sides of the story. And I told him I don't need to. I know this book. I've heard this author on an interview in a different podcast, which will be nameless. But nonetheless, I was not impressed with the person who wrote it. Now, so let's just, what, the reason I bring that all up is because Jeanette's right. What you hear on the airwaves, even from some of the alternative media folks like Glenn Beck, simply isn't true. That's why one of the reasons I brought uh, Jeanette on the podcast the building in Burns, my understanding, I don't know if it was dirty or what, but it was very clean by the time they left. Now, my understanding, right. I know that the, some of the offices were cluttered, but it was clutter from previous occupants, probably employees or something. They made it very clean. Um, if you wanted to eat, you had to do your fair share of the work before you could eat. You couldn't just say, oh, I want to eat. You had to do your fair share of the work. And the Ammon cleaned out the garage and did a bunch of, a bunch of maintenance on the equipment. It was a very structured occupancy. It wasn't just a bunch of angry people chanting all day. There were sheriffs that would come in the building and meet. And uh, then LaVoy went out to John Day. But is there anything else you want to say before we get there? before we go there in reference to the occupancy and how clean the building was and how well behaved everybody was you're not going to hear this from the fbi either folks no let me just make a few points here when they arrived all the lights were on the heat was going but nobody was in their offices it was as if they had left it available for anybody to walk in it was the doors were not locked Um, It was very messy in some of the outbuildings and their offices were very cluttered, Um, but everyone went to work and everyone cleaned. And um, yes, there were assignments that were given, but they, to keep busy positively, you know, you want to compare similar protests. You know, you had the Ferguson riots, you had all of these different riots across the country this past year and summer Um, where buildings were being burned down, businesses were being looted uh, at the thought of somebody being shot in the back. Um, And I feel for the family of those who have lost loved ones, um, especially at the hands of the police where they were shot in the back without their due process rights as, as our family has experienced. But you didn't see the whole country go to Uh, ruin over it. You know, there's a double standard in this country. And now we have this issue about what happened at the Capitol, which has put at the forefront, the, the blaring lights of media and the left shining down upon all of the conservative right. 
and, and trying to lump us all into this same category of a domestic terrorist um, organization. And that's a very scary thing. They were doing this back in 2016 and 15 with the Hammonds, 2014 with the Bundys and 2016 at Malheur. They were labeling us white domestic terrorists. Now they couldn't press charges under the domestic terrorist um, because there is no domestic terrorist definition or code or law written. It's all under the Patriot Act where it's, you know, a foreign domestic terror, foreign terrorist that, and, and these were not foreign actors. These were men standing up for their property rights that were citizens of this country. And so they weren't colluding with another country to do this. So they couldn't get that to stand in court. But with what has just happened, what has just happened in the nation's capital this last uh, couple of weeks, that incident is going to spearhead these uh, special committees in Congress. They're going to develop that definition. They're going to pass a code and they're going to pass a law against domestic terrorism. And they're going to start coming after American citizens in this country. And I'm really, I have traveled the country for four and a half years, five years, it's five years, five years next week that Lavoie has been dead. And we have been sounding the alarm about this domestic terrorism code and definition, the law that they want to put in place so that they can start arresting more of us that do not think or believe the way that they do. They, they want to see only one kind of America. And that's what I'm getting from all of what's coming out of Washington now with all of the different things that are happening with the freedom of the press is as, as, as controlled as it is. It is no longer free. It is no longer unbiased. It is, it is an arm and agent for the, the extreme left and to, to do their bidding and look at Facebook and Google and Amazon and all of these different large uh, corporations that are taking control of what we the people can hear, what we can say, how many people we can talk to, whether where we get our information, where we choose to do um, our, our conversations, on what platform here or there, we are no longer free to choose for ourselves and we are being si silenced. And it's no longer just a Facebook following like Ammon Bundy's uh, People's Rights group that's being taken off because his, he's been demonized for years, right? It's no longer Ammon. It is now people that um, are in Washington, uh, head of big organizations that are being targeted because they supported the conservative right or they supported President Trump or they were in the mall that day when a few people ran the the, the and, and did the damage that they did. And so everybody is being lumped into one bag and we are all gonna be um, labeled a domestic terrorist, a racist. We are all to be sorry for being white and sorry for, for who we are. Um, and I, I, I just, I can't go along with, with this type of thinking. We were uh, born in America, a land of free for all its people. No matter where we came from to uh, originally, no matter what color of, of, of our skin, my husband said when he was being interviewed, freedom has no color. Freedom is colorblind. He truly believed that. Mm -hmm. and, and God is no, God, God made all of us. We are all his children. And so he cares about each and every single one of us. He cares about the, the, the black man as much as he cares about the white man. 
because he created us both. And neither one is better than the other. And I just don't understand where all of this is coming from. All this hate mongering, all of this fear mongering, because that is not um, the conservative right. And I have met so many people across this United States, so many good people across this United States, and nobody had any negative things to say about any uh, group of people one way or another. We, it, that's not what this was about. This is about preserving the liberties and freedoms of this republic for all its people. And, and, and we continue with the press that we have in place, um, continue to be demonized, marginalized, and lied about. And I, 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 I hope and pray that there is another form of media that is able to rise up and allow free expression, freedom of thought, free debate, open debate, uh, without the fear of losing a job, without the fear of being um, label lynched um, out, of, out of existence in my husband's case, because he was labeled lynched in the press and without his due process, he was then murdered because those officers felt they had the right to be judge, jury, and executioner based upon the information they had, which was falsified, which was hyped up in the press to then put fear in the minds of the people who then clamored, clamored for their arrest and death. And yet we watch things happen across this country with other groups of people where the they are then taken to extremes where they commit murder and, and, and thieve, they steal, they burn things down and nothing, nothing is done. There is no accountability and no control over, over those types of behaviors. Yet we see 25,000 federal troops in our capital, in our capital. Yet yeah. they could not do anything for these cities and for these people and for these small businesses and for these private citizens for all summer long. They could not do anything to help them. And I, I'm just, I'm baffled. I'm baffled. And I don't understand how the American people cannot see through the garbage that is coming at us and cannot see the truth. As so many, I know there's a lot of people who can because how many voted for Trump? What, 75 million? <laughs> so I know there's 75 million people who see the truth. For the record, the and you, you have to best. know a little something about the blind community, but for the record, I'm probably one of the few blind people who voted for Donald Trump. But you see, I thought America was a racist country because we had slavery and segregation. This country is no longer, a well, you know, the hate that is being spewed from the left is just as much racist as it was in our early beginnings of this country where people uh, were treated badly, people of color were treated badly and were um, slaves. We are no longer that country. We have grown up. Yep. We, you know, Martin Luther King fought and died for his principles and values that he instilled upon so many people and influenced so many individuals. You know, I was born in 1960. So I grew up learning about him and about his love for America and the freedom that it, it, it the dream of freedom for all its people. And he was this like beacon of light and love 
and uh, of all people. And, and that's just not, it's just not, it's being twisted now. And I just am saddened by all of that. I'm saddened, but we see reverse racism now. Now we're labeled the white racist without any evidence to back that up. But because of the color of our skin, we are grouped into a category that they have already prepared for us. You know, um, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, um, you brought us some very good points. I <laughs> thought the uh, Chaws, the no, the, uh, I can't remember what Chaws stands for, but I thought it was supposed to be the city of love. Oh, a cop got shot there and there were murders going on in that place. We better shut it down. And yeah, Washington, D.C., there's a double standard because the liberals are upset about what happened there and blame it on Trump supporters. So, yes, there is definitely a double standard. Let me ask you, though, when Lavoy, before Lavoy Finnegan was shot, why do you think that he, uh, your husband asked the police to shoot him. And the other thing that I'm a little confused about, there's some articles that suggested he was armed. And then there were some that said he wasn't armed, but he had a gun in his jacket. What exactly happened there? Because I, I, I wonder why he didn't, if he had a gun, why did he just not shoot them in self-defense? Well, and you know, he would have had every, in my um my estimation of what happened and what I have learned through the trial of Agent Astorita, who was put on trial in 2017, I believe, um, all the evidence that came out in his trial, um, Lavoie would have been within his right. He was the one that was threatened. He was the one that should, was in fear for his life, you know, as everyone in the truck was. Mm -hmm. But let's go through that day. Let's go through that first stop because this is information that came out in trial afterwards and has not been um, given to the public yet because we're still waiting to do my trial. We're still in the process. Yeah, we're going to get there. Uh, but carry on. Like, yeah, like, walk us through that day. Stop. They're pulled over. And the agent, the FBI agent in charge of that first stop is testifying that the occupants of the truck were in full compliance to all orders that were being given them until officer number one fires around into the truck. Now, the agent in charge testifies again that because Officer One fired a round, a live round into the truck, he was responsible. That officer was responsible for escalating the entire situation. Not the people in the truck. They were complying with the orders that were being given to them at that point. Well, that's when you see Shauna turn on her camera inside the truck. That's when you see Lavoie talking to the occupants of the truck saying, what are we going to do? What do you guys want to do? Shall we go see the sheriff, etc.?" And they all decide that they're going to go on. Well, in further testimony, at that point when Lavoie leaves and he heads to see the sheriff, officer number one radios ahead to officer number two at the kill stop and says, we're going to have to kill Finnecombe. We're going to have to kill Finnecombe. That's what he radioed ahead. Lavoie had not brandished a weapon. No one in the truck had brandished a weapon. Yet when he left, they decided right then and there, that officer, that Lavoie deserved to die, to die, not have his day in court, not have a trial by his jury, by, by a jury of his peers, nothing, nothing. He deserved to die. For what? For demonstrating about property rights peacefully? So as he's coming around the curve, 
as he's coming around the curve, there are shots fired into the front of the truck. As he lands into the snow, as he swerves out of the way, he swerves out of the way to miss an officer that jumps in the path of the truck. He swerves again to miss the officer. If he was a true terrorist, yeah, I read that. If he wanted to kill someone, he would have ran that officer over. But he had no intention of taking anyone's life. He was there to protect the people in the truck. That's why he leapt out of the truck when he did with his hands in the air. And at that very exact moment that he's leaping from the truck is when Agent Astorita fires two shots into the truck, which miss him because he, he's leaping at the same time. Had he remained in the seat, he would have been killed. And then you see the video play on where he is out in the snow with his hands in the air, yelling, you're gonna to have to shoot me, you're gonna to have to shoot me. But he had no weapon in his empty hands. They were in the air, they were empty. And after age, uh, officer number one meets up at the kill stop with officer number two, this is all happening within seconds. They shoot him three times in the back. The two Oregon State Police officers shoot him yep. three times in the back. But that's the ninth shot that had been fired, not the first three shots. He, they'd already been fired upon six prior times. Now, after he's killed in court with that we all observe for four weeks for that agent's trial. They show a video, they color code each officer. They show uh, to, to try to, 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 uh, to figure out which officer was in that line of, of, of shot because Asterita was lying under oath and lying to his supervisors. So they were able to determine by color coding the officers that he was the one that fired those shots. Now, the officers are surrounding Lavoie's body. And then you see in the film, one of the officers get up from the snow and walk over to the truck and open the driver's side, rummage around in the truck and walk back to my husband's body. And that is where I believe that they planted a gun on him because you see, he had taken off his weapons and left everything but his nine mil, left his six shooter from his hip, the shoulder holster that he always wore that carried the nine mil at his room at Malheur. And what I believe happened was when they saw that he was unarmed because he didn't have his shoulder holster on, they went to the truck, as you saw in the film, found the nine millimeter under the Navajo blanket on the dash of his truck where he often carried it and then went back to his body and placed it on his body at that time. I believe oh. it was planned. I believe it was planted and so do so many other people. And there's evidence that, that, that shows this to be true. And then as you continue to watch the film and you continue to hear all the testimonies from all the different officers, you're watching the FBI uh, special HRT team continue to molest the scene for over nine hours. They do not secure the scene. They molest it for nine hours. They're picking up evidence and it's all on film. They're moving evidence. So by the time that the, 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 um, the officer gets there to secure the scene, it had been nine hours. She secures the scene and then she goes to the body. And that is when, that is the first officer that testifies to see in a weapon on my husband's body. Nine hours after he was killed, there's nobody that can tell you that he had a gun before that. Not even the medic that was brought in to, to pronounce him dead, 
moments after he had been shot and after Ryan and all of them were arrested. The medic is the first one on the scene and he does not testify to seeing a weapon. It's not until the examiner gets there nine hours later and she, she sees the scene unsecured and messed with and that's when she sees it. She also testifies to seeing a well-worn path between my husband's body and the truck. Why would there be a well-worn path in the snow between my husband's body and the truck if they weren't looking for evidence, if they weren't going back and forth, like you can see them doing in the video? There is so much to be known and to be accounted for. And we yeah. need to get to to do this. Yeah. Okay, so you don't think LeBoy had a weapon on him at all then during this whole shooting? Because I've, I've read conflicting reports. That's why I asked no, you about it. I don't. I don't. Okay. I believe he had a weapon in the car. Did somebody never... put a weapon in his jacket? Because I read... No, the, the, I believe made... they put it in his jacket. I believe they placed it there. Okay. I believe they found it in the truck because they thought they were shooting an armed man. Because in previous pictures on different days the media had him wearing his shoulder holster or wearing his six shooter well he didn't have his six shooter on he did not have his shoulder holster on i believe he left the weapon in the car he never reached for it while he was driving he never had a weapon in his hand while he was driving he had no intentions of using his weapon okay yeah so what what do you think would have happened if he would have shot the cop who was uh, who aimed a rifle at him. The, the gentleman, uh, the FBI HRT team member that was in front of him was carrying a stun gun. Um, and what I had wished had happened that he would have used that stun gun or um, I wish they would have used that on him rather than uh, live rounds. I wish they would have tried to take him down with a less lethal, lethal force. They had no reason. He didn't even so much as have a speeding ticket. He never had been arrested for anything in his entire life. He had no history of violence. He had no history of anything illegal. There was no reason why they couldn't give him the benefit of the doubt and take him down with the stun gun or by other means. He was completely surrounded by 30 plus agents in the trees, snipers all around him. There was no need to fire their weapon. And why shoot a man in the back, right? We have yeah. multiple situations around the country where men are being shot in the back, their hands in the air, <clears throat> excuse me. Some of them may or may not have, have committed a crime. And I pray and hope that we can bring more light to um, my husband's case, not just all the other cases um, that have been highlighted in the press, but also my husband's case, because he's a white rancher, doesn't make him any less um, any less yeah. reasons why he should not be allowed his day in court. How is the uh, lawsuit coming? I know that it was uh, it wasn't officially dismissed, but the last I heard in 2020, nothing was done. We have been on <laughs> with COVID. We we got our oral arguments in in March, just be the week before they shut the country down. And we waited months to hear back from the judge um, in reference to her ruling and in, in reference to the oral arguments for dismissal. She did dismiss many of the different 
defendants in the case. However, this is where we are right now. We are arguing the dismissal of the federal government and um, moving forward, hopefully for a trial date for the uh, defendants she left remaining in our lawsuit, which are, which is the Oregon State, Oregon State Police, but we're hoping to include the federal government in that, because that's what we're arguing right now on appeal. Um, and it's going pretty well, and I'm, I'm hoping for the best. We have until the end of this month to get that appeal in for the federal defendants to be renamed in this complaint. Um, but we're going forward. So soon, soon we'll have a trial date. I know, you know, I, I, I remember saying right at the beginning, you know, in a year, in two years, this has dragged on for five years, but that is the, that is their modem of operations. You know, they want to draw, drag it out, uh, make it as expensive and costly and timely as possible so that nobody is ever held accountable for the dirty deeds that they commit. And they continue to make, to, to, to do this to, uh, American citizens. And because we're just the average American citizen that doesn't have a million dollars to fight a lawsuit, um, we end up giving up and we cannot afford to continue to give up. We have to fight this in the courts. We have to hold them accountable. We have to have reform in our, in, um, our police departments within their training and, and what they understand their responsibility is for the American citizen. Um, we are entitled to the, the due process um, that um, is outlined in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. Yeah. So do you think, I hate to bring this up, but with the new administration coming tomorrow, and in some cases, maybe tomorrow is here when you're listening to the podcast, do you think that will hinder the trial because the new administration brings liberal judges, liberal ideas? Do you think that'll change the course of anything? I really don't think so. I think we're in the Ninth Circuit. I'm already dealing with the most liberal circuit out there. Um, uh, I do have hope. Uh, I know God is in charge of all things, and um, but he isn't going to hand it to us on a silver platter. We have to work for things, and I'm willing to continue to push forward um, until there's nothing left for me to do. And then I can say I've done all that I can in reference to holding them accountable in LaVoy's death. So what was your reaction? Uh, where were you when you found out LaVoy uh, was shot and killed? Where were you and what was your reaction? Well, I had just left Malheur. I had been home less than 24 hours and I was at my daughter's basketball game. And we were all sitting in the gymnasium in a little small town called Fredonia, watching my youngest daughter play basketball. My sons, my brother-in-laws, my father-in-law and mother-in-law, everybody was there because it's a small town. And, and so we started hearing that there had been an incident at Malheur. And I'm going, there can't be, there can't be because I had just left and everything was peaceful. You know, I went into town, my husband took me to eat, um, we went to church in town. There was never any problem coming and going from Malheur. There was no, um, and so I just had, I, I just couldn't believe it. I, and so I went out into the hallways and um, was trying to call Lavoy to no avail. And um, Lisa Bundy called me and she was the one that informed me that Lavoy had been killed. And it was pretty, um, horrific 
Oh yeah. Lack of a better way to explain it, but it was horrific and it was numbing. And, you know, we had to, I had to go get my daughter off the basketball court and his parents were sitting there and my children, my other children were there. It was quite an emotional time. And, you know, we know everybody in town and the police officer was there and he says, Jeanette, come with me. We'll go over to the station and we'll try to find out some more information, you know, because everybody was saddened by the news and in shock. And um, so we were spent another couple hours at the police station trying to get information to no avail because they, the police officers would call the hospital for me. They would call the police departments up there in Burns and nobody would talk to us. They would put us on hold. They would switch us to an answering machine. It was quite unbelievable. It was literally three days later, I'm up in Oregon picking up my husband's body that the police department or sheriff's department stops by the house to inform us that my husband is dead. <laughs> Officially. So when you said that you called the police, did you call the Oregon state police or which police department did you call? We were at the Fredonia police station and they were helping me make the calls to Burns. Oh, okay. They make the calls to the hospital, trying to find out any information because after watching me make the calls and get um, hung up on or, or whatever. Nobody wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to give me any information. And, and the police officer, our friend thought that he could get some information. So he started to make the calls and he got the same response. Why do you think they chose to kill Lavoie instead of Ammon? Do you, do you, I have my own ideas, but I want to hear it from you. I, I have no idea why they took anyone's life that day. I have no idea. Um, my husband was educated, articulate. Um, he had people that were starting to listen um, as he would do the interviews that he was put in charge of, of giving and doing. I, um, he was able to articulate the, the position that the, that the Hammonds were in in such a light that hadn't been done before, meaning the press certainly wasn't articulating it that way, right? And so what people were hearing for the first time from Lavoie, from Ammon, from meeting them in person up there at Malheur, um, people were starting to, the, 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 the venues that they started to go speak at were growing by the hundreds and people wanted to hear more. Um, well, uh, do you want to know what I think? Sure, I'd love to know. I think it's because, uh, and I got this impression from your video that I watched in Far West Utah, your DVD that's out. I think it's because what you said, Lavoy was articulate, but I also know that he was teaching people how to get rid of or fire the BLM so that they wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. I don't, Ammon was a young, strong guy. I'm sure Lavoy was strong too. But I think uh, they saw Lavoie as maybe someone orchestrating the event because wasn't Lavoie, my understanding is he was teaching people how to get rid of the BLM, correct? He was teaching them about the Constitution. I don't think he went around teaching them how to get rid of the BLM. Uh, now, when I say get rid of it, I'm talking about getting rid of it in the ranchers' lives, not paying the grazing fees anymore and things like that. And I don't even know that he was doing that up at Malheur. I know he wasn't doing that when he was uh, selling his book and doing his little talks around town. 
but he would talk about the Constitution and the principles of liberty that it espouses and, and, and why it is that we need to be more free and why do we need so much government intrusion? And he would talk like that, you know, he would ask questions and he would, and then, and then talk more in depth about, well, you know, I know how to ranch. I don't need somebody to supervise me. I'm going to be a good steward of the land. You know, I think he uh, just was able to, to teach in that way rather than, um, telling them what to do. I, my husband wasn't somebody who would tell someone else what to do. Yeah. So what was your takeaway at the trial? Because I was shocked that they, I was pleasantly shocked that they all got off, especially in liberal Oregon. As a friend of mine said, I mean, obviously you folks did what you had to do, but as a friend of mine said, you were doing all this at the wrong place in Oregon where they're awfully liberal. Judge Anna Brown was not a nice person to you either. So what was your takeaway from the trial? My takeaway from the trial was, is, you know, you know, you watch the corruption in today and you watch everything, everybody getting away with what they're getting away with. And that, that's the same feeling that we had going into these trials. I remember sitting next to Carol the day that down in Nevada, but, but this, this holds true for the Oregon trial as well. We, we prayed and prayed and kept trying to have hope and faith and, and, and trusting in God to deliver them, right? But you saw all the evil <laughs> designs around you and you could see the power of, of, the, of the opposition. And it, it, you really had to pray for a lot of hope and faith. And so, but the thing that saved us was ordinary people who were serving on that jury. They could see, they could see through the government's lies and they could see through the deception. And thank goodness for that jury who found them all not guilty. That, that truly was, and right at the end there, that truly was a blessing to have the one juror removed because they had been um, uh, trying to, uh, break the law. Um, and so they had that wonder removed, but and in Nevada, what a blessing that finally, finally through behind channels, um, with the whistleblower, uh, Wooten, uh, there's just so much, that's a whole nother story all in itself. That's an amazing story. Um, and then to have the five Brady violations come in right when they did. And, and the judges being sanctioned behind, you know, uh, closed doors being told you, you cannot, you have to, you know, dismiss this, right? Because there's so much that was, was done that was so illegal and corrupt by the federal prosecutors and, um, and uh, the attorneys that withholding evidence and, and making the clock run out and not giving over the information that they had duly asked for. So uh, there's just so much, this story is uh, so huge. And unfortunately, the only bits and pieces that the American people know are the headlines they read and the 22nd Twitter feeds that they read. And that's our attention span anymore. We don't have the attention span to, to dig in, dive in deep um, and when, if we read a book, we think we know it all and we don't, you know, like your friend and, no. and there's so much more that has happened that has been, uh, buried very deep. And it, it'll be a miracle if ever the truth comes out, the complete truth comes out in reference to the whole story, the whole picture. Um, and, and there's so many, it would take hours to tell it all. <laughs> and you know I, what? I think eventually, in this, in this interview with me, because there's so much, like my lawyer, who's been through all the trials, 
what an amazing speaker that would have you would have coming on to talk um oh yeah <laughs> you know what though uh, maybe this is not what you want to hear but i have noticed being 40 years old eventually the truth always comes out eventually it always comes out now the problem is it may come out when you and i are dead yeah it may yeah. come out when i'm in a nursing home and can't do anything yeah but i, I think, think oh go I, ahead i think history will be kind to lavoy and i think that he will um eventually be vindicated um and I know that Ammon and Ryan and Cliven, they all continue to fight for what they believe is uh, the right thing to fight for. And Shauna and all of the other patriots, I believe that that's what's in their heart too. And our family continues to fight in our way. And mm -hmm. um, we probably always will be active in, in uh, preserving liberty and freedom in one form or another. <laughs> yeah, so when Lavoy was killed, obviously the Catholic charity that he was working with sometime before, not too long before, I think it was in early January, decided not to do the foster care, probably because of what they've heard on the news and the image and all that. What was your source of income at that point? Um, that was our source of income. Other yeah, than so we had the so, ranch. And what happened was that first week that Lavoy went there, um, they pretty much decided that because of it, it was a national story and they considered them white domestic terrorists and racist. We, these were the headlines coming out of New York. Yep. And they said, you get rid of that. You cannot have that, those people working for Catholic charities. And so we were done after 18 years of not even so much as a hint of a investigation of any kind, we were done. And um, so we just carried on. And, but by the end of the month, he was dead. Yeah. So I guess when the foster thing ended, what did, what eventually became your source of income? The ranch. Oh, Okay. And the sales to my husband's book, you know, he, he wrote that book in 2013 and it was published in 15. What was and the that, book? Yeah. The book only by blood and suffering. And, and um, so Is that, that way was, I can get an audio copy of that. I don't have an audio copy. I so or apologize. I really or... find the right voice for that book. I, so many people have asked me to do that and I just haven't gotten that gotten there yet. <laughs> okay. I know my daughter's book has an audio copy. She did it. And I think it's on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon. Who did the audio copy of what? Sorry, my computer was talking uh, to me. It was Liberty Rising by Tara Tenney. She writes oh. one descent. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll have to look for that before Amazon yeah. bans it, like they've done everything else, it seems. Yeah. I've yeah. actually been, um, Facebook has put me in a, Facebook jail. So I'm in Facebook jail until Thursday. <laughs> I'm surprised I'm not there yet. By the way, just as a side note, we are on Facebook at uh, LDS Live Podcast, but I have not been mentioning it for the past, for the past while because I am not happy with Facebook. And that's why I haven't been mentioning it. I'm still out there, but um, I think that there's better avenues to publish this thing, quite frankly. We definitely need to find other avenues that are um, that aren't going to censor us. <laughs> yes. 
my biggest problem right now is these alternatives like Parler, MeWe. Parler doesn't work very good at all with my screen reader, Jaws. MeWe works okay, but not as good as it needs to. <coughs> so that's my biggest issue. That's why I'm still using Facebook for certain things because uh, I, I can't, I'm too tied up with it. I can't get away from it entirely. Um, but the one thing that I want to ask you is how have you seen the BLM Bureau of Land Management mismanage land? Because I know that they'll, they'll tell you, Oh, we're going to do this, 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 and this for you. And maybe they did. I mean, I've read some history about the BLM. It sounded like it started out as a good organization and then got corrupt probably in the 60s, 70s, certainly in the 90s. But how have you seen the Bureau of Land Management mismanage land? I personally um, can't um, talk about any personal stories because uh, I haven't seen it personally. I know that okay. they fought with me in reference to uh, putting my cows back out there right after Lavoie was killed. It wasn't until Trump was put into office that they lightened up on me and my lease. Um, and, and so that was a little bit of a battle uh, in the beginning. But I'm a different person than Lavoie, and I was the legal heir to that property. They just was hoping that I would um, go bankrupt, sell out, you know, so they could get rid of the whole problem. They got rid of the man. Now let's get rid of the ranch, right? They want, that's the one thing about the left is they will take you down. And that's what we're watching nationally. They're taking down uh, conservative, outspoken conservative people. They're uh, uh, people who are leaving uh, the Trump administration aren't even going to have jobs. They're talking about taking away uh, college educations, diplomas, from from uh, high-ranking officials. It's just like, are you kidding me? So when Lavoy was murdered, they wanted to do the same thing to me. That's one thing about the left's administration. Uh -huh. You know, Obama was still in, in, in office when Lavoy was murdered. He had direct communications with the governor of Oregon. And that was FBI, that was Comey's FBI who, who was in charge of sending that HRT team out there who was responsible for Lavoie's murder. And so when that all happened, the BLM, you know, the whole administration wanted to make sure that we were made an example of. So they wanted to take me out as much as they took Lavoie out. And they wanted to strip me of my property ownership. They wanted it to go down. And so how does that make other people around us feel? You know, other ranchers, what are they gleaning from this? What do they feel about this? You know, when they watch a rancher get murdered for standing up, they're all going to crawl back into their private little houses and say, no, I don't want any part of this, right? We're watching the same thing. I, I was saying we were watching the same thing with the mass, the virus, Yep. how, you know, the government has come in and regulated to death in some of these cities and arrested people, private business owners. You know, it is it has been awful to hear some of the stories coming out in the news. And we're not even hearing even a drop in the bucket of what is actually happening because they're not going to print those type of stories. They're not they don't want the American people to know that there's this much invasion of our liberties. Right. <laughs> um, but it's happening on a mass scale. And so if they can scare us into submission, our, our ability to be able to provide for our families, to put food on the table, people are going to submit and they're going to conform and they're going to toe the line. And so and they know that it's human nature. Right. Yeah. I want to ask you just a few more questions and then we'll be done. Um, 
I know that you gave your, I know that your, you gave your land, at least I have heard anyway, that you gave your land back to the BLM or the BLM no. was, oh, no. okay. Why I, did I hear that? I still have my lease. I don't know. I don't know who told you that. Um, I'll tell I you off the, the podcast who told me that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't give anything back to anybody. I still own it. I, but I did not uh, follow in the same footsteps as my husband did. I did not tell the BLM to leave me alone. And uh, I, I didn't do that. My family wanted me to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want the BLM to come after me the way they came after my husband. And they were actually threatening to do just that. They were going to arrest me and then pound my cows and put me in jail. And so my kids and my family and my attorneys urged me not to do that. So we made a, a you know, a set, got a settlement and because um, they were fining us thousands of dollars and uh, because of what Lavoie had done. And so there was a settlement and we paid the settlement and we've been running my cows on my land. Um, on, I should say on our grass and on our water, because we don't own the land. It's a lease and it's different. It's mm -hmm. not private property. Um, the ground is not private property. It's the private property is the grass and the water. I own the water rights. And so I had to fight for the water rights next because they were trying to take some of my water rights away. And so I had to fight for those and I won and I still have my cows out there. No, I have not given up my ranch and I have not given up my property rights at all. Okay. I'm glad you clarified that. Um, I want to talk about women really quick, particularly Carol Bundy, but let's just talk about women in general here as it pertains to this. Mary Lynn Bundy was interviewed on a talk show. I'm sure you know Mary Lynn. And she, the, at the talk show host on Cairo News Radio, this was years ago, I think back at, right after the standoff in Bunkerville. No, I think it was, I think it was during the time that uh, Lavoie was in, I think it was after, uh, after Lavoie was killed, actually. Mary Lynn was interviewed on a talk show on Cairo News Radio in Seattle. The talk show host asked a very good question. How come they haven't come after the women? And Mary Lynn said, if they did that, then they will definitely have blood on their hands. You know, the FBI, BLM. Do you think that's true? Well, they did come after me. Yeah, but as far as shooting you, as far as things they like that, have. I think. I think they would have had I pushed it. Um, but my family urged me not to. And none of the other women were doing or standing. They, they weren't doing what their men had done. So mm -hmm. there was no reason to come after Carol Bundy. Um, they were busy fighting to get their husbands out of jail and fighting to get through the court process. And I think they, they thought they, I think they thought so arrogantly that they thought that they were going to win, that they didn't need to go after the women, you know, because they figured they would put their husbands behind bars and that would take care of the rest, right? Then, then the ranch would go by the wayside because all the men would be in the, in the jail and nobody would be able to run it. And, and so, I, you know, that's just my first initial I thought. Do find I it. really haven't put a whole lot of thought into that other than, you know, 
it, it would not have served them well had they gone after Carol while her husband was and sons were in jail. They're right about that. I don't know if the whole country would have gone up in arms because um, when something big like that happens, when the FBI swarms in 400 agents into one town to take out 20 men out 35 miles outside of the town, you know, that show of force, just like the show of force that we're seeing in DC right now with 20,000, 25,000 national troops, who's going to go make a protest there? <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. Uh, Although not in people's. I, I find it interesting that Shauna Cox was in jail for just a few days, I believe a day yeah. or two, and then they released her. They could have gone that after her. The optics of a woman in jail, both her and Victoria were let out really soon. Victoria that same night and Shauna, you know, a couple days, like he said, um, they wanted the men. They wanted the Bundys. But they could uh, have gotten Shauna just because she videoed the whole thing, as it was my point. Mm -hmm. uh, why do you think they didn't come after Shauna? I think they were willing to let her out on bail like they did. And, and prosecute her in court. I I don't think that they thought they were they would ever lose those trials. Yeah. They believed that they had the Ninth Circuit, a liberal court, and a liberal state, Oregon, <laughs> a judge that was not allowing evidence to even be heard for the most part. You couldn't even have a Constitution peeping out of your pocket. It, you no. weren't weren't allowed to, to 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 even really exercise your rights in that court and so i don't think they thought they had it in the bag i think they really thought they had it in the bag but it was the american people who saved the day the people who served on that trial um which started that was such a positive day and that, that brought so much more hope again for the second trial and um i just yeah. don't think they thought they were going to lose. It's just like the federal government now. They don't think they can lose. I don't know. Maybe they do. I mean, maybe that's why they have all these guards in D.C., the, the National Guard and all that. But let me just uh, switch gears here. I want to talk about Carol because the first time I had ever heard Carol talk, this was long before I went to the Bundy Ranch. This is back in 2000, uh, 2017 just as things were ending this was probably around christmas time i heard carol bundy being interviewed on facebook with brian hyde and i really felt a special spirit when i would hear carol talk am i the only one who feels that way or have you felt the same feelings when you've heard her talk i love carol bundy she is a dear friend and she was a dear friend to me when we were all going through all of this um, early on and uh, continues to be a friend. She does have a sweet spirit about her. She has a great deal of love and hope and faith. And um, if we could all be like her, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, We'd all be in a better place. <laughs> yeah, I, I've told people if uh, Cliven and Carol are not in heaven. I don't want to be there. That would be a wonderful thing. They're good people. Yes. Yep. All right. Uh, two more questions. Um, what do you like about being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints? What do I like about it? Yes. I like how um, 
it talks about family. I like how uh, Christ is the center of the church and not a person, but Christ. Not a human being, but Christ. And I, I love the idea of eternity, that we can be with those whom we love again in the next life. Um, those, are, those are the first things right off the tip of my tongue. <laughs> okay. And so do you have a calling right now? And if so, what? I, I don't actually. Well, wait a second. I think I'm... No, I don't. No, I don't. Okay. Not since... Um, with all the traveling I've done in the last little while. And then with my mom, again, I'm a visiting teacher and that's a calling. <laughs> I have to ask you though. Oh, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. I have to ask you because a lot of LDS people were upset about that. Oh, that's another thing I want to get into. Do you remember when the church put out an edict? I don't know. I want to say an edict, but they put out a statement condemning the occupation in Burns. What did you think of that? Yeah, I was not happy. And let me tell you why. First off, it was a statement that was put out by the news department of the church. Okay. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a first presidency statement and it was done by their news department and it was based on a, a Washington post article. And it says so in the statement. And so that bothered me. <laughs> Why would you get your information from the Washington post? Um, yeah. So that those were the first things that came to my mind. And the second, the, the residual effect of that statement was that it split people even more within the church. Um, and it made us look like um, we were called apostates. Um, some people told us that we, we should be excommunicated for our stand. Um, all of my children in different areas of the country um, experienced great hardships um, due to uh, the natural man tendency to lead, uh, to uh, not think things through, right? Yeah. With the human being in front of them and pass judgment and no one is to be passing judgment on any, anyone, right? That's left for our savior. And, um, but we experienced a great deal of persecution because of my husband's stand within the church. And I, I would have thought that that would have been the safest place for me to be. And it wasn't true for most of my family members. And I have to say that I know that that is true for the Bundy families. And I say that plural families because um, they dealt with a great deal of hardship in their different areas as well. And I mean, areas of the country because you have different uh, feelings about politics in different areas of the country and uh, within our church, we're not told how to think or how to vote or, or what we should be doing or shouldn't be doing in reference to politics. At least we're not supposed to be told what to do or think, but people have their own minds. And sometimes they're bishops and sometimes they're state presidents and sometimes they're areas, 70s. And, and, and they have very firm opinions on one way or another. And so 
and that, and it does come across and you can be sanctioned and you can lose your temple privileges and you can lose your membership if if some of these individuals in these positions feel that that's what they should do and 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 not that it would be the right thing for them to do but yeah it could happen and so we had a great deal of of um pain we went through a lot of pain in so many different ways and i and i say that we i mean my family my children's lives and in the bundy families i think i'm safe to say that for them as well so was your bishop and state president supportive of you in spite of the statement i don't want to be real specific but i will say this much my bishop was an amazing man and he loved my husband and he said so and he stood firm on that and i am so grateful for the bishop for mm -hmm. standing behind me in lavoy but that is not true for the rest of the people that i've been talking about oh okay we'll have to talk about that after the podcast um yeah, that's interesting. I remember when the church came out with that statement, I was shocked. I also heard, too, one of the reasons they came out with a statement is evidently somebody had the Twitter handle uh, who was in the occupancy of the Malheur Refuge named Captain Moroni. And I heard that really ruffled feathers within church headquarters. Well, I'm sure it did. I don't I don't know. Um any specifics on that, but I'm sure it did because see, they want to stay neutral. They don't want to be political and they don't want to have anything bad reflecting on a worldwide church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to discuss before we end the podcast? Um, we are going forward with our wrongful death lawsuit. And if anybody is able to help continue to uh, contribute to this cause, to this, for this justice, for my husband, for um, our day in court, you can visit our website, onecowboystandforfreedom.com. And there is a donation button there, or you're welcome to purchase my husband's book. And the proceeds at this point of my husband's book do go to all the legal fund. And, um, I want to say thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for continuing to tell my husband's story. And thank you to your listeners for being interested in our family and the welfare uh, of our family. And um, I pray and hope that we each continue to be involved in this fight to preserve our republic and that we find ways within our own communities to serve and in a political sense, not just in our churches, but in a political sense, whether it be on a school board or a city council or other, other opportunities that might um, be in front of us, but we need to be politically active in preserving this Republic. If we continue to, to sit back and let someone else carry the burden, we will no longer have this uh, free country that we have. And I use that word very sparingly right now because I do not see such a free country right now. Um, nope. I see our freedom slipping, slipping, slipping away. And every day there's a little bit more encroachment upon that line, right? And that's yeah. what's worrisome. And it's not so much for me. I'm 60 and I'm a grandma and I've got maybe another 20 years here on this earth. And then I go to my next job. But what about our children and our grandchildren? What I'm seeing happening now and the, and the way it looks for them, it, it looks pretty bleak. And I know it has to get bad before it gets better. And 
maybe we just need to pray for it to get bad real fast so it can get better real fast. I don't know. But, oh, um, I think we're going to go through some very, very tough times. I think like-minded individuals are going to have to stand together more than ever. Um, I think we're going to have to start doing businesses with like-minded people. I'll give me an example. This, is, this happened to me last month. I, went, I was going to buy my sister, one of my sisters, some Mrs. Filtz cookies. Mm-hmm. By the way, this is not a plug for Mrs. Filtz or Mrs. Kavanaugh's <laughs> chocolates. This is just an example. And I like Mrs. Filt's cookies. I'm sure you've had them. I'm sure you like them as well. They're good, in my opinion. In fact, uh, my cousin yes, used to I make <laughs> uh, Mrs. Filt's cookies. I think she, yeah, she had a Mrs. Filt's cookie recipe. Now, I don't know if it was from the company itself or if it was from somebody who thought that these ingredients go into Mrs. Filt's cookies. I have no idea. Because I can't imagine Mrs. Filt's giving the recipe away. Can you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I, I remember that and I thought I'm going to give my sister some Mrs. Feltz cookies. And the other thing that was possessing me to do so was the fact that I had received some Mrs. Feltz cookies for Christmas through a friend of mine an early Christmas. And then I thought, you know what? I don't know what Mrs. Feltz cookies politics are like. I have no idea. And I thought, I know what Mrs. Kavanaugh's chocolates politics are like. I've done commercials for them. I've done, uh, I, I've been to their store in the West Valley, in the West Valley, uh, Valley Fair Mall. So why don't I do business with them? And that's when I started realizing I need to start doing more business with like-minded people. We're going to have to do this to survive. What's your thoughts? I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we do need to do more business with like-minded people. Now, I realize we cannot do this. Oh, what? I think a bigger problem we have, um, along with doing business with others that think uh, like we do, is we need to have our own media platform um, and infrastructure. Absolutely. Um, And I'm uh, I'm hypocritical. I do not have my own platform. I use a third party. I need to figure out how to get my own. Because all of the infrastructure is big tech. And so we have to have a conservative infrastructure outside of Google, outside of Amazon, outside of all of them, then parlor places like parlor and, and rumble and all of those will be able to be on an infrastructure that is free from um, censorship, you know, and, uh, but we just don't have our own. It's all controlled by the liberal um, medias and controlled by uh, big tech out of California. Yeah, I agree. And uh, like I said, I need, I need to get my own, I need to figure things out. I have no idea how to create an RSS feed. I just relied on the third party. Good news is for me, yes, I'm on Spotify. Yes, I'm on all the platforms. Well, most of them. But if I get booted off right now, I still have Blueberry. But uh, yeah, you're right. I, I do need to figure out how to get my own structure, how to structure everything. Um, and I know that doing business with like-minded people is not always going to be practical. Our cell phones are owned by the big three providers. And yes, you can get on Pure Talk. You can get on Patriot Mobile, but they are still using the big three towers, Sprint, Verizon Wireless, T-Mobile. So in some cases, it's going to be impossible. But where we can, I think we need to do business with more like-minded conservatives out there. 
I agree. And they don't have to be necessarily members of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, just people. I agree. I agree. (laughs) Anything else you want to talk about before we end this podcast? By the way, stay with me real quick. I want to ask you some questions that um, I didn't want to ask on the podcast, but I'll ask them when we're done here. You there? Yes, I'm here. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? No, that's good. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeanette. I enjoyed interviewing you and I will talk to you later, folks.